This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The fucking stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the official voice of Ratio Christi Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we explain the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing, and where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we have an exciting guest on today. But before we get to him, a couple of news items and our quote of the week. Kirk, you're going to like this quote, I think. C.S. Lewis? from John Stott. Oh. <laughs> Why? Did you think it... What? No, you know I like C.S. Lewis, so I thought oh. you were going to give us another quote from him. We've only done about 60 of them this year. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yep, no, this one's from someone else. That's actually why I thought you would like it. Oh, okay. (laughs) So it's from John Stott, who is an English theologian and wrote the book Basic Christianity that I read back when I first became a Christian, actually. He says, Knowledge is indispensable to Christian life and service. If we do not use the mind that God has given us, we condemn ourselves to spiritual superficiality and cut ourselves off from many of the riches of God's grace. There you go. That's a good one. That's a good one. Well, let's see. I guess last week we told people that I was going to be speaking at a high school in Pennsylvania, and that was a great time. Got to speak to a group at Kennett High School in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, and want to give my thanks to Devin and Jeffrey McVeigh for inviting me out. This is the second annual creation night that they did. So last year they showed a video, Lee Strobel's The Case for the Creator, and this year they decided to have a live speaker. So I had the privilege of speaking for them and tried to cover some of the more interesting evidences for and against evolution. And then did question and answers, and it went really well. It got a lot of notoriety because some atheists tried to shut us down. Uh-oh. Yeah, a couple of atheists complained to the school board, tried to silence us, but the school board realized that the McVeighs were well in their rights to rent out an auditorium and have someone speak on whatever topic they wanted. What, so, atheists don't believe in free speech? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty funny. In fact, it made it into a radio show. There was a morning radio show Wednesday morning, and they invited one of the atheists to come on. And he got on and said I was like the Westboro Baptist in my protests, and which was really it was really interesting. The hosts of the show really jumped on him for that and said, "You mean are you calling the, this a hate group? Are you saying a hate group is coming?" You know, and then the guy would back off. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. And then he repeated himself that it was, you know, the Westboro Baptists were coming to town. So, do you do you protest funerals, Keith? <laughs> I didn't know that about you. <laughs> exactly. 
So it was pretty wild. So there was enough of an attempt, though, to shut us down that the organizers got security and had an off-duty police officer there. And they, uh, so there was police presence. And then the atheists didn't even show up. I was hoping for some good dialogue, some good exchange, some good questions. We did get a lot of good questions. There were a lot of youth there, and they, uh, I was surprised. I thought you know the adults would ask most of the questions, but actually the youth did. And so, and there were some very good questions. So, so it was all turned out to be uh, a great event. Well, upcoming events, Kirk, you and I are going to see an interesting conference in Philadelphia. This is the Westminster Conference on Science and Faith. Yes. Put on, yeah, put on by the Discovery Institute. So that is April sixth. So if any of our listeners who live in the area are interested, we could meet up there. That would be great. It's actually kind of outside Philadelphia, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a little to the south and west, So, but well worth the money, well worth the drive. So I think it's going to be very good. I've been to – this is an annual conference that's put on by Discovery Institute, and I've been to several of them in the past, and they really do a good job. They bring out the best scientists, ones who are doing current research, and really do a good job, usually talk about intelligent design or some – aspect of it. I think last year they talked about were Adam and Eve real. And so so it's a good program. Let's see. Then also for those who are really close local listeners, my church, Victory Bible Church in Hamilton, is putting on its annual Passion Play, and they do a very good job. It's very elaborate. Everybody loves it. So that is going to be March 24th through March 29th at 7 p.m. in the evening. So to reserve, call 609-567-4466. So that will be good also. All right, Kirk, anything else before we bring our guest in? No, not really. All right. Let's go to it. Well, let's, uh, let's jump in with our guest is Dr. Robert Carter from Creation Ministries International. He is a Ph.D. marine biologist and does research in human genetics. So, Dr. Carter, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Well, we're really grateful that you could come. I had the great pleasure of hearing you speak up in Medford a few months back. I don't know if you remember that talk. It was a small church, but you did a great job. It wasn't that long ago, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I brought some students from Stockton College out there, and they really liked it. They still talk about it, and they are still actually working to have you come uh, to speak in the area again very soon. So we're oh, that'd be great. we're going to work on that. But I want our listeners, both locally and worldwide, doctor, to get to know you a little bit better. So if you could tell us maybe about your work as a marine biologist and your PhD work. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, sure. I, um, my training is in marine biology, specifically in the genetics of a uh, protein family found in one particular coral in the Caribbean, or a couple of corals actually in the Caribbean. Um, I did about 500 scuba dives during my, my doctoral work, getting ready for my, my final defense. Spent a lot of time in the, in the lab. Uh, sequencing genes and doing experiments and taking our genes and putting them into bacteria and then taking those genes and putting them into fish. So I had some experience with transgenic organisms and and things like that. Did you make those glowy fish? Um, actually, we did make some glowy fish, yes. It's not <laughs> the glowy did... fish that you can buy at Walmart. 
um, because the University of Miami, where I was working, wasn't had no intention whatsoever of licensing our fish out to to be sold to the aquarium trade. Um, but yeah, we definitely made some bright red and bright green fish. And didn't that get into the newspapers? I remember hearing about that years ago. Um, yeah, but it, what got into the newspaper was the other guy's fish. Ours are better, but that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I like that. Now, you're currently working with Creation Ministry International, so tell us a, about that. What's what's that like? Uh, well, Creation Ministries International, or CMI, it's um, oh, about 35 or so years old. It started in Australia many years ago. Uh, they've currently got, uh, I think, seven offices in different English-speaking countries around the world, and we give approximately, oh, 1,400 or 1,500 different, uh, well, actually, about 1,400, 1,500 different venues. We probably give about eighteen or 1,900 talks around the world every year. Wow. I think we have about 15 Ph.D. scientists on staff, uh, maybe about 25 total speakers, so we're really busy and really active all over the place. Now, you're concentrating in genetics right now, is that right? Uh, yeah. When I, when I got done with my, my dissertation, I said, okay, uh, I like genetics a lot. I didn't like ecology very much, so I just basically downloaded the human genome and started writing computer programs to analyze genetic stuff. That's what I've been doing ever since. That was in 2003, so I'm, ah, man, it's been almost 10 years now analyzing human genetics. And, and you're working with someone who's been a guest on the show? I am. I'm working with Dr. John Sanford. Yes. Um, in fact, he and I have published two papers together in the evolutionary literature. Uh, the last one was just last October. Um, uh, we're, we've been writing a book together. We, we collaborate on a lot of different projects. We've got a lot of irons in the fire at the moment. Dr. Carter, do you mean to tell me that the atheists are wrong, that creation scientists, they told me that you that nobody publishes in peer-reviewed journals. Well, if, tell that to the 15 PhD scientists who work at CMI, all of whom got their training at secular universities. So now you're actually doing research now, is that I am. right? I am, yes. Wonderful. So again, another supposed impossibility. Yeah. Well, what we don't do and what we can't do is we can't publish papers that have uh, creationist conclusions in them because right. they would get rejected uh, without consideration. So when we do have something to publish, it has to have some general relevance, and we have to couch our terminology very carefully without lying, because we don't lie on purpose. You know, no, we're not supposed to do that. Um, sometimes we have to take some of the implications of what we're writing about and not put it down on paper, just because okay. the evolutionary gatekeepers would not like what we were what we were discussing. Right, right. Yeah. I gotcha. And so, hopefully, they just won't put two and two together and realize, oh, this article slams evolution. Yeah. Yeah, but the science of science and the things that I do, I mean, I, I'm just analyzing data. I'm taking uh, genetic information that evolutionary scientists and laboratories have put together, and I'm just crunching numbers. Mm. That's what I do. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's just data analysis. And when I come up with something really interesting, it can be published just because it's just a summary of the information they've already provided. Now, you just recently had an article that made it on the cover of Journal of Creation. I think it was the latest issue. I saw the coral, beautiful coral uh, pictures, and I thought, oh, I know who wrote this article. <laughs> yeah. Can you um, tell us a little bit about that article? It's Ancient well, Coral Growth Layers. What is that yeah, about? What, what I'm trying to do is um, there was a, a poster put out by the BioLogos Institute um, about a year ago, and it was, uh, it was a number of different evidences for a, an old earth, and all of those evidences that they put up had already been discussed on creation.com that's the website for creation ministries international 
um, or in our journal of creation or even our creation magazine or our books, but the one thing they didn't talk about was um, growth layers in corals. And so I wrote this article specifically addressing that one point in that in that uh, the information that BioLogos is putting out, and I, I pointed out that their claim that the ancient coral growth rings were evidence of an old earth was absolutely false and based on information that had been contradicted about a year or two after it was put out, and that was in the 1960s. And so this, this meme has been floating around in the evolutionary world. Oh, you creationists are crazy. Don't you know about these ancient coral growth layers and how they prove that the, that the Earth had a shorter day length in the past and there was more days per year, and that's exactly what's predicted based on evolutionary theory, and yet the, evol- the evidence actually was really bad. And so that was, that was the article. Okay, so they were claiming that these were ancient because it seemed to somehow match up with an, a shorter day? Well, yeah, because the moon, because we have a moon, the moon is slowly slowing down the Earth. Mm-hmm. And we can measure that, and it, it's like microseconds per year or, you know, maybe a second or two per century. And if you stretch that out to millions of years, you would expect that there would be uh, about 400 or 410 or 420 days per year, depending upon how far back you go. Mm, interesting. And so when they found these, these micro layers in these um, ancient corals, sort of corals, ancient things that look sort of like corals, they're a little different group, um, they, they count them up and said, ah, look at that. Um, but the very next year after that was published, someone was doing this, and they said, no, no, these, these are monthly bands, not annual bands. Oh. <laughs> and when you divide it up properly, the, the answer came out to pretty close to the number of days in a year now. Um, and in Biologos' paper, a poster, they, they said, basically they talked about several different ways to get banding and coral, and none of them were what was being discussed in the literature that they were citing. And so I was just trying to set, set the record straight, and I think, I think I did an okay job. It got published. Wonderful. Well, let's talk about evolution in general. Where I, what I've been doing with my opportunities to speak and, and uh, Sunday school class and such is point out the fact that evolution really is a downward process. Is that Good. accurate? Am I describing evolution correct? Or well, no, evolution is not a downward process. Reality is a downward process. Mm. The evolution requires um, the ability first to mutate and then secondly to get rid of any bad mutation that might occur. Because over time, an organism must improve with respect to its environment and must get more and more fit, more robust, able to have more children, so it can outcompete other species. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not what we see. What we see is, um, I call it the scorched earth policy of genetics. Um, you know, like when, when, the, when Napoleon invite, in, in, invaded Russia in the 1800s, the Russians pulled back and burned everything. And so when Napoleon got there, there was no food to feed his troops. And so he's marching through this burnt wasteland. Now, what, what it meant was that the Russians were able to win and, and the French had to leave, but the Russians were left with nothing in the meantime. And that's okay. what we see in genetics. When we see some mutation that allows something to adapt, some you know, new information, the evolutionists like to call it, new trait, almost always the new trait is something broken. So like okay. antibiotic resistance in a bacteria. Bacteria might say, well... Um, if not, not, then bacteria don't talk, right? But, but let's say a bacteria says, if I break this thing right here, then I can't pull the antibiotic into my cell, and it's not going to kill me. So all of a sudden, this thing gets broken. This protein that used to be a transporter protein doesn't work efficiently anymore, and the bacteria now grows very slowly, but it doesn't die. 
because it can't pull the stuff inside, which would have killed it. So what it did was it's, it, it, it scorched its own earth. It survives at the expense of something that supposedly took millions of years to evolve, this transporter protein, and it doesn't work anymore. So in the wild, the bacteria is, is really compromised. It, it's a slow-growing bacteria. It can't compete with anything else. But in the presence of the bacteria, it's still alive. Therefore, it's better off when, I'm sorry, in the presence of the antibiotic. It's better off when that antibiotic is present. Does that make sense? A little complicated, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, it does. Okay. It does. So this, this is why you only hear about these kinds of bacteria being in hospitals. Yes. Because yeah, they can only survive. On com, there was an article a couple of years ago about superbugs. Right. And the author, Dr. Carl Whelan, he says, hey, go, go roll around in the dirt if you have one of those uh, the superbug infections because the native species will outcompete the, uh, the compromised species that's growing. Now, of course, he wasn't serious about it, but... Uh, he's just pointing out that all the uh, the super resistant bacteria actually grow very slowly. Right. So, and you were saying that this is reality, right? That this is the same yeah. as the rest of reality. Yeah. And the the number of examples we have of something being broken that allows some sort of a genetic adaptation and natural selection to act on it, and there, there are so many examples. It's so much easier to break something than to make something. That I mean. I, I actually I can't think of anything that's some glorious new invention. All I can think of is, is dozens of examples of something busted, and that bustedness created a new feature, and that new feature allowed some organism to respond differently than its neighbors, and it actually spread out and, and took over something. And yet it's not as fit as the original. Gotcha. It's a downward process. Right. What natural selection does, actually, natural selection removes the worst. And it actually helps preserve a species so they don't go extinct because mutation would drive us all to oblivion very quickly. But natural selection calls out. Now, I know natural selection, you know, nature can't select. Nature is not an active entity. However, just to use a convenient term, natural selection will weed out um, things that are really, really bad off and keep the species alive over time. But it ah, does not produce more robust species. Gotcha. So, so you've really got two forces going on. You've got that downward force of the mutations, the things going wrong, and then you've got a stabilizing force that helps to get rid of some of the really bad stuff quickly so that it doesn't influence everybody else too yeah. bad. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, for those who are just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rosho Christie. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking with our guest, Dr. Robert Carter, a biologist and geneticist, about evolution. You know, you're talking about uh, this uh, downward trend of evolution, if we should even call it that. I'm thinking of how, as we get older, we end up having more and more surgeries and more and more things cut out of us so we can live longer. <laughs> we're, we're not as good as we used to be because we're missing parts, but it allows us to stick around a little longer. Yeah. It's kind of a similar idea to what you're describing. Yeah. Well, apply that, to, apply that to genetics and the human genome. The older a person gets, the more mutations they pick up. And what eventually kills everybody's mutation accumulation. You can't avoid it. Every time your cells divide, they add more corruption to those three billion letters in your genome. And eventually, you have so much corruption, you cannot possibly live any longer. Hmm. The same thing happens to species over time, because a lot of those uh, mutations are inherited. Mutations that occur in the germline cells, they're inherited from one generation to the next. So a species over time picks up more and more and more mutations, and that drives species towards extinction. That's so the opposite of what Charles Darwin said was true. Let me ask this question. My wife uh, is an elementary school teacher, 
And she has a lot of children that pass through her classes now who have a lot of strange illnesses, like um, they're allergic to peanuts. If if they come anywhere near peanuts, it might kill them. Or uh, I'm allergic to peanuts, by the way. Really? Yeah, not um, quite that bad. There's but all yes, these. You know, some of them are uh, gluten intolerant. Some of yeah, them are gluten intolerant, right? And corn. I can't eat corn. Really? Now, are these examples of? Uh, no, I don't remember this kind of stuff being around even when I was a kid. We're talking fifty years ago. Yeah. Is it be- my imagination? Well, because of that, I think it's environmental, not genetic. Oh, is that what it is? I think so, and or it's epigenetic. It's something in our in our last couple of generations that we've been inheriting. And that our immune systems are reacting to, and I, I mean, some people try to um, blame immunizations, and I've seen data supporting and refuting that. Some people say it's diet, some people say it's this or that, and I don't know what the answer is. Um, but our ancestors, okay, my ancestors, like all my ancestors came from Northern Europe, uh, uh, Norway, Holland, Ireland, England, Northern Germany. My ancestral gene pool never saw a potato, a piece of corn, high gluten wheat, or peanuts. Hmm. Those are all recent inventions. Hmm. In fact, uh, the potato, corn, um, they came from from the New World. My ancestors never saw soybeans. Hmm. And it turns out that I can't eat those things. Wow. They, they really knocked me down. And, and so I don't know what the answer is. I just know it's really complicated. It's something about genetics. It's something about environment. But the bigger issue, I guess, is I think I told my Sunday school class this morning that human beings as a species – are dying out, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, every generation born uh, has about, every individual has about 100 mutations that their parents weren't born with. And natural selection cannot see them. See, here's another thing about, about mutation and natural selection. Most mutations are not strong enough to be selected for. They're small mutations, little teeny changes. You have, in order for natural selection to work, you have to have something that has a profound influence on the ability of that person to have children. If it's something tiny, even something as much as skin color, it's not selected. Something hmm. like something that might, you know, make you run one percent slower than you would otherwise. Natural selection can't see it, and so those kind of things they just slowly degrade the species because everyone is mutated. Everyone's picking up mutations. Every generation just adds more and more and more, and that kind of accumulation. This is stuff that this is the stuff that Dr. John Sanford must have talked about. That kind of accumulation. Yeah. Um, is is basically slow poison for a species, and that's what we're seeing. Yeah. So all these science fiction stories that try to tell us that uh, in the future we're going to have big brains and we're going to be able to fly and we're going to have all these physical abilities that we're going to evolve, uh, that's more fiction than science. Yeah. <laughs> we're actually going the other way. We're going downward. Yeah. Yeah, reality, scientific measurement, um, everything we know about genetics, even pop- population genetics theory, Everything's pointing in the other direction. Right. Wow. Now, now let's talk a little bit about that population genetics. Um, well, I guess it fits in the same category is that they're doing these DNA studies of the migration patterns of human beings, early humans. Yeah. And it seems to me strong evidence that what you're saying is right, that the genome, the information in the DNA is getting worse and worse over time because this is actually how they track which populations moved where, isn't it, by the loss of genetic information? Very very good point. Yeah, it's the mutations that accumulate over time um, allow us to track um, the genes back in time because different populations pick up different mutations. So you can build a family tree 
of the different populations and say, oh, look, the original had that, not this. So something like um, blonde hair. Blonde hair started in Scandinavia. Blue eyes started in Northeast Europe. A sickle cell anemia, the most common one, started in Central Africa. The ability to digest lactose as an adult started in East Africa, and another one started in Scandinavia. Um, so we, we can see these, these mutations that have occurred in time, and they're localized. But, and then when you look at that, say, well, blue eyes is only found in Northern Europe originally. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it started. That was a mutation that occurred in that population, sometime early in the population, because so many people have it, and it was not the original. And so we can back up the clock and back up the mutations to see what the original looked like. It's really cool. So they're doing this now to like track, and they've they show. I've seen a National Geographic website where they show how people moved from. Uh, in their view of it, they have it out of Africa and yeah. into Europe, and then all the way to North America and South America. And so, you think that's all accurate? Uh, the way they're doing it, tracking the decline of the DNA. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fully explain it. Let me point the listener to creation.com and to an article that I put into the Journal of Creation a couple of years ago called um, uh, the out, called Out of Africa. And I describe the assumptions that go behind it, the data that supports it and doesn't support it, and alternate ways of interpreting the evidence. Um, but just, just to be real brief, the grand assumption driving the Out of Africa hypothesis is the assumption that mutations accumulate at the same rate in all populations throughout all time. There are any number of factors that might affect mutation rates. And if any one of those is true, not even all of them, but if any one of them is true, um, we can't tell where the ancestral population was. So for me, right, who I, I believe the Bible, I believe Genesis. Genesis says we all came from Adam and Eve. Genesis says we all came from Noah and his family. That Noah and his family lived in the Middle East, and there was something a couple hundred years later called the Bat- Tower of Babel incident, where the one single human population spread out across the world from that point. Well, the, the, the evolutionist actually has all of us living in one place and a, a small population that was initially spread out. They say it happened in Africa. I say, no, it happened in the Middle East. The difference between the two is the assumption of mutation rates because Africa has more genetic diversity than the rest of the world put together. You take right. two people from, from some significant tribes in Africa, different tribes, they could be more different from one another as someone from Iceland is from someone from Japan. Wow. Essentially, most of the world has a genetic diversity of one African people group. That's a kind of grand, I just kind of glossed over a lot of stuff there. But So there's a lot of diversity in Africa, not so much in the rest of the world. But the question is, is Africa an older population? Well, if the assumption of mutation rates accumulating at the same rate all over the place is true, then, well, maybe it is. But I, I... I don't know. I, I am very uncomfortable with saying that mutations accumulate in a clock-like fashion, and because that you have to factor in the average generation time, you have to factor in the number of children per family, how fast the population grew, whether it didn't grow or not, um, and all these different human subpopulations across the world have all experienced different demographic forces, and all of that should influence the the, the, the mutation accumulation rate. So yeah, would the ones true. who are the people groups that are moving away from Africa, moving away from the Middle East and going, say, to North America, would they be experiencing a faster mutation rate, or are they the ones having a slower mutation rate? Um, I, um, let's see, let's see. 
people in North America, the, the Native Americans, mm-hmm. they are clearly a subset of the people living in Northeast Asia, in Siberia. Mm-hmm. The Native Americans clearly came from Asia, genetically. Right. Um, they're, the Native Americans as a group had a very low, uh, uh, very low genetic diversity because they came from a very small founding population. So what we right. see is as we go away from Babel, we actually see a serial dilution of the genes, of the genetic diversity. The further away from the Middle East you get, and that includes going south into Africa and west into Africa, the further away from that center point you go, the lower genetic diversity is. So Europeans are not that genetically diverse. There's much more genetic diversity in the Middle East. As you go across Asia, it, the genetic diversity goes down. As you go into North America and South America, genetic diversity goes even further down. Mm. So we see this, like this winnowing of genes. This, um, it's either natural selection or it's uh, founder effects or right. uh, bottlenecks or something. The further away you go, the less genetic diversity got carried to the extremes. I wonder if the fact that Africa was heavily colonized by Europe had anything that might have added back genetic diversity into Africa. Uh, no, because we can tell where different pieces of DNA came from. Like uh, African Americans today, the average African American is about 30% European based on history. And I'm not trying to be politically incorrect here, but just based on history, your average African American in, in the United States has about 30% European ancestry. And we can see when we do gene sequencing, oh, that is a European piece and that's an African piece because of the, the accumulation of mutations that have occurred in the different populations. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and we actually we have seen, or at least the evolutionists have claimed, that there's been backflow of genes from, from like, Arabia into Ethiopia. And so some Y chromosomes, some male lineages that made it into uh, Asia actually came back into Africa and increased the genetic diversity of the Y chromosomes in that area of the world because they came back into Africa. So we, hmm. we can trace a lot of cool things, but I'm really uncomfortable with putting a clock on it. Because, I mean, there are people in the world that have a defective DNA repair system, and we know that the people in those families pick up mutations faster than other families. Oh, interesting. And so what, what we have to say is for this out-of-Africa event to be true, that all populations throughout all time have had the same exact mutation rate, and yet we know that there are factors that affect mutation rate, not just genetics, but environment also. Right. And so interesting. Interesting. It's just real frustrating because the whole thing is based on this grand assumption. And if you start questioning the assumption, all of a sudden there's all these other op- op- uh, all these other alternatives open up, including the biblical alternative. Right. It could be just as easily that the center was actually in the Middle East and that it just happened that the group that went down into Africa was the more genetically diverse of those yeah, who were A larger were group or maybe more groups. Because it's really funny that the Bible doesn't talk about any part of the world outside of the Middle East and the areas right next to the Middle East, even in the Table of Nations in Genesis, where it's describing the people spreading out after, after the Tower of Babel, it doesn't talk about sub-Saharan Africa. It doesn't talk about Asia. It doesn't talk about Australia. It doesn't right. even talk about India. Interesting. Clearly, now, go ahead. are they doing the same kind of thing, trying to track not only human beings, but also doing this for, like, dogs or cattle or other kinds, and is that showing a similar kind of pattern that, that might have been caused by yes. uh, Noah's Ark, say? Um, well, yes. It's a little more difficult because most of the information is being accumulated for people, because, you know, for obvious reasons. We study people more than anything else. But um, let's see, if I can just list a couple of them. Uh, all dogs in the world, according to the latest evidence, uh, were bred from gray wolves in the Middle East a few thousand years ago. Cattle 
wheat, rye, barley, vetch, um, basically all the the uh, important uh, Western grains and and farm animals were domesticated in the Middle East. In fact, most of them in the mountains north of I- Iran and Iraq in the Zagros Mountains, which is really, really, really close to where uh, Noah's Ark was supposedly landed. Wow, cool. Now that just might be a, a product of of the fact that Western civilization came from that area of the world and we spread out and, you know, conquered and got rid of all the Neanderthals that, that lived there tens of thousands of years ago or something like that. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with marine biologist and geneticist Dr. Robert Carter from Creation Ministries International. Well, Dr. Carter, you just briefly mentioned about Neanderthals, so let me turn the topic a little bit and say, let's, you know, everybody, Christians are always interested in what about cavemen? So was Noah really a homo erectus? I had one uh, parishioner tell me that can't be because those people were so ugly. (laughs) Um, Okay, homo erectus first and then Neanderthal second. Homo erectus from the shoulders down looks like a normal person a modern person. Their heads were very different. Their skull shape was very different. The brain size was smaller than the modern average, but not to the point of, of um, being so small that they wouldn't have been as intelligent as a modern person, but smaller than average. Neanderthals. Neanderthals lived in Eurasia, from Spain to Siberia. Um, the latest genetic evidence uh, actually was shocking because they've, they've not just, they, they sequenced the Neanderthal genome, at least about 60% of it, uh, several years ago, and then a, a year or two after that, they actually sequenced a bunch more. And what they showed was, was shocking. They said Neanderthals from one end of the range to the other. That's, you know, thousands of miles that we found these Neanderthal skeletons well-preserved enough that we're able to pull DNA out of them. Thousands of miles of range. They have incredibly little genetic diversity. Less genetic diversity than you might find in, like, Iceland. Hmm. Meaning... Neanderthals as a group were very, very closely related to one another, as if maybe they were just one family that got into Eurasia after the Tower of Babel event and then were wiped out, overwhelmed, or a small population and interbred with a larger group of people that came in later and made up the bulk of the European and Asian genomes. Interesting. The, the geneticists right now, most of them, are telling us that if you are of Eurasian ancestry, you're 3 to 4% Neanderthal. Wait a minute. That means that people indistinguishable from modern people on the genetic level interbred with Neanderthals, which means by definition we were the same species. Right. So the whole caveman thing, forget it. I mean, they're genetically compatible with us. That's the biological species definition. Right. Now, what about Homo erectus, though? I have a guy that lives down the street from me that kind (laughs) of looks like a Neanderthal. Um, I know a lot of people try to say, oh, this person or that person has Neanderthal feature, but they really are a distinct group of people. It's not just head shape. It's the shape of their, um, uh, the shape of their, their uh, rib cage. Uh, it's the size of their muscles, the size of their bones, it's the type of teeth they had. They're a distinct group of people. Um, but then again, it looks like there's a lot of Neanderthal modern man hybrid skeletons that we found buried in places. Um, but the classic Neanderthal is... You know, as different as two people from different races would be today. And or maybe they a little have more different. bigger skulls, and I think geneticist uh, James Crow said that the cavemen were superior to modern man. Well, let's see. They had bigger brains than us on average. 
the back of their brain stuck out. It's called the occipital bun, meaning they're probably more coordinated uh, and agile than we are today. Um, they had thicker bones, stronger muscles, better teeth, teeth that could, you know, with thicker enamel so they could withstand a lot of wear. Um, they were powerful. Um, they were tall. Um, I, I mean, it, there's, there's little to suggest that they were inferior to us. In fact, mm. I know that evolutionary paleoanthropologists fight with one another. And I'm going to cherry-pick some things from a whole bunch of people that, that may, might argue with each other at some conference. But I've been told over the last 10 years that Neanderthal buried their dead with their heads pointing towards the sunrise, that they painted in caves, that they made musical instruments on a pentatonic scale from things like deer antler, and that they searched the landscape for rare minerals and brought them back, ground them up into powders for cosmetics, and they kept them in a, in a decorated shell with a hole so they could have a string uh, so they could hang it over, uh, over their head. Mm. What? That's not the Neanderthal man I grew up with. They, the, the gene in Neanderthals, uh, the Fox P2 gene, which supposedly is what gave us humans the ability to speak, is identical to ours. Neanderthals, it looks like some of them carry genes that when similar genes occur in Europeans, they cause green eyes and freckles. Mm, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, well, more and more evidence just saying that these, not... these were people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but what I really want to know is, are the Flintstones Homo erectus or Neanderthals? <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. Sorry. I don't even know how to sarcastically reply to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we uh, we run out of time, I really want to touch on something that I think is very significant for the young Earth creationists. And, and just for clarity's sake, Dr. Carter, we, although Kirk and I are both young Earth, we do uh, enjoy having old Earth scientists on, so we try to look at both sides of it. But one thing that seems to really uh, hammer the uh, nail in the coffin of the young for the young earther is this discovery of young dinosaur bones. Do you have any information, inside information, you can fill us in about what's been going on with the discovery of young dinosaur bones? Well, actually, the discovery of young dinosaur bones is over a decade old, and yet yeah. a lot of people have still not heard about it. And it baffles me how come they haven't heard about it. The case has been getting stronger and stronger and stronger over time. Um, the latest stuff that came out in the fall was not just flexible tissue and blood vessels that they found in dinosaur uh, bones, but uh, evidence that there's DNA there also. And, you know, robust experiments, people doing all these different experiments in multiple laboratories saying, no, look, that, that looks like DNA, but there should not be any DNA there. Zero. I mean, supposedly they died out 65 million years ago. So you're taking a 65 million year old, 70, 80 million year old dinosaur bone, and you're finding DNA in it? I mean, the geneticist in me is screaming, saying, no, this is impossible. We've had supposedly a couple of, impossible to pull DNA out of Neanderthal bones. We've had a couple of guests on this show that have alluded to that, and, and my question to that is, when is Jurassic Park going to open? I don't think it will. <laughs> um, the same reason why I don't think we're going to claim we're going to clone a Neanderthal. When they pull the DNA out of Neanderthal bone, those, those chromosomes that used to be millions of base pairs long, I mean, chromosome one is like 250 million letters long. The longest pieces they were pulling out were about 50 letters. Wow. And so they did a massive parallel sequencing and sequenced millions and millions of little pieces and then ran them into a computer that aligned them, which is why they only could do 60% of the genome. Anything that had any rep repetition to it, they can't do because the pieces are too small to cover the repetition. Hmm. The hmm. dinosaurs should be even worse. But see, I don't think they're older than the Neanderthal man, at least, you know, not by many hundreds of years anyway. Um, and so... I think that there's great hope for sequencing dinosaur DNA. How about there have been news stories recently about some scientists uh, feel 
that the possibility is really good that someday we may be able to uh, regenerate a mammoth from DNA. Is that possible or not? Um, same answer. In fact, I, I wrote an article for Creation Magazine uh, not too long ago that talked about the claim that people are going to try to clone a mammoth. What I suspect is that we might be able to create a mammoth-looking creature by taking an elephant and genetically engineering it to be hairy with a funny skull shape and things like that when we learn enough about what genetically uh, caused mammoths to look like that. But to re-engineer a complete genome is incredibly difficult from fragments because there's so much uncertainty when you when you recreate the genome. There's pieces that are going to be missing and things you don't know, and so they're going to have to use the elephant as a template, and I suspect most of the elephant. But elephants aren't, aren't lab rats. They're not E. coli. They're not things that have typically been used in, in a laboratory because they're, it's not fun to do genetic experiments on elephants. They're too slow. They're too big. They're too expensive, and they don't breed fast enough. Well, it's hard right. to get them in through the lab door, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're talking about something that's really, really hard to do. Mm. As far as cloning, I mean, someone just a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, someone, I think it was at MIT, said, hey, I'm looking for a, a human female that would be willing to, to host a cloned Neanderthal baby. <laughs> oh, gee. Same problem. The technology simply isn't there. We are not anywhere close. And yet someone says, oh, I think we can do this. Like, no, you can't. Right, right. And plus, it's illegal in this country to do the experiments that would lead to the creation of a human fetus, a human baby that had been genetically engineered like that. But it makes a good story on the nightly news. Oh, it certainly does. That was a, that was a big a big meme in the, uh, in the popular literature for a couple of weeks. And, of course, these kind of stories are on the front page of the Weekly World News newspaper every week. <laughs> yeah, we don't go there, though. <laughs> so so the, the interesting thing about this young dinosaur issue with the evolutionists is that they're not willing to give up their dating method, but they are willing to give up all the scientific evidence that beforehand that had proved that such things could not survive, that red blood cells couldn't survive for thousands of years or that or uh, millions of years or that DNA couldn't survive. And actual testing and measurements had been done beforehand and... I understand they're willing to give that up, but they won't give up the dating. Uh, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, who pioneered this, I have to be careful here because she claims to be an evangelical Christian. And so mm. I don't want to assault her faith because, you know, I, I used to be an evolutionist myself. Most of my colleagues were evolutionists. Um, I understand why someone believes in millions of years. I've been there. Um, but she, she was faced with this very question. She's looking at data that totally contradicted her millions of years idea. And yet at the same time, she says, you know, how can this thing, how can this be? These things are 65 million years old, aren't they? But, well, Miss Mary, you can't see the reality because your evolutionary trees are sticking up in the middle of your forest and you can't see this vast vista of young Earth evidence right in front of you. And she's doing this pioneering work. And, I mean, she, her reputation, she was attacked. People right. are like, you are a liar, you are faking your data, you are wrong, blah, 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 blah. But she kept on plugging away, and her argument has just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. In fact, um, two young, okay, another example of young Earth creationists publishing. Two young Earth creationists, good friends of mine, have published, um, in fact, through the, um, uh, the Creation Research Society. They went and they found a triceratops horn in the same strata in the Hell Creek Formation that Dr. Schweitzer started with, with her Tyrannosaurus rex and the, the, the fresh tissue in there. Actually, it was stinky, dead, rotten meat stuff, but, you know, fresh as far as the evolution is concerned. 
and they found a triceratops horn, and the pictures that they put in their paper that got published in an evolutionary journal using electron microscopy on these bones, it is nothing short of stunning. You can see the bone. You can see the bone cells. You can see all this ultrastructural detail that should have decayed over time. Because these things are in sandstone. There's water percolating through the sandstone. The water is going to dissolve the bone and re-precipitate it and recalcify it and, and destroy all the structure. And yet they're still there. Wow. I have a hard time believing they're 4,500 years old. I don't know how something can last for thousands of years in that beautiful, pristine state. Right, even it's hard to believe it survived this. even from a young Earth cr- yeah. uh, viewpoint. To me, it's a miracle of preservation. How on Earth can this be true? And right, Mr. Evolutionist, right. if you think this thing is 65 million years old, I don't think you have any science to suggest that these things can possibly survive that long. Well, gee, now, Keith, I'm, we've shown on this show in the past that dead men bleed, too, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah, that's a that's a. He's referring to a joke. That's I don't an joke. have time to tell the joke. <laughs> um, we've told it about three or four times on the on the show, but uh, I do want to ask you about the latest report that finally somebody has carbon dated these fresh bones. Um, apparently, uh, evolutionary uh, not really evolutionary, but carbon dating laboratories run by evolutionists have been dating dinosaur bones for several decades unknowingly. Um, and there's a person who's been spearheading this and paying for it, and other people have been collecting them and sending them in. And they've collected lots of lots of information um, that says that dinosaur bones do have carbon-14 in them, which should not be true if they're millions of years old. Because carbon-14, I mean, the theoretical um, maximum measurable age with the most modern accelerator mass spectrometer is maybe 90,000 years because mm-hmm. it breaks down so quickly. Mm-hmm. And yet, if these dinosaur bones have them in there, that means it can't be 90,000 years old or something wrong with carbon dating, which I don't think it is. I think it's a great science. It's really cool stuff. Um, so um, the problem with the research is that it has been published in an evolutionary journal. But the reason it's not published in an evolutionary journal is they won't accept the data. And no one seems to be willing to go and do it themselves. And even, I mean, even the theoretical paper, why do we find carbon-14 in dinosaur bones? And here are some you know, reasons why this might be true, yet no one's gone, gone and done that. And so obviously the creations have to be wrong. They're lying about their numbers. No, we didn't run these tests, or you sent us something that was wood, it wasn't dinosaur bone, it was a piece of coal. Uh, well, actually, it's funny because you used coal, you get similar numbers, because coal can't be millions of years old either. But hey, that's, that's another story. Interesting. Interesting. Very good. So... So what do you think, what's the biggest mistake? I mean, you, you have experience working side-by-side side with a lot of evolutionary geneticists oh. and biologists. What yeah. is the biggest mistake that the evolutionists are making? I believe that evolutionary theory is rooted in a philosophy. It's called naturalism. It's a belief, not a proof, but a starting assumption that natural processes can explain everything that's ever occurred in the universe, is occurring now, and will ever occur in the future. It is not provable. It is not really demonstrable. It's just a grand assumption that underlies all of evolutionary theory. I don't have that assumption. My assumption is theism, that the God of, there's a God in this universe who created this universe. And therefore, the God, the reason the universe exists that it is, and the reason that there's laws and there's constancy in the universe is because there is a God who's spinning everything the same. And it's the character of God reflecting on the environment and on the universe that gives us this, this universal laws. In fact, those kind of thoughts were pioneered by the Christians who basically formulated modern science um, back in the 1600s. And later on, natural law was stolen from the Christians who invented it into this 
this, this idea that the universe just has these constants, but there's really no way, no reason for that. So, I, well, okay, to be short, I think the reason or the grand mistake that most of my colleagues were making was this assumption that naturalism is true. So really, modern science based on evolution is really based on a grand philosophical assumption that cannot be demonstrated, and it's not necessary for science to work. So if Christians are to fight back, or if we are fighting back and we seem to be losing, what's, what, what are the mistakes we're making? How come, how come we seem to be losing the battle? Um, I believe because uh, basically by the late 1700s, the intelligentsia of Europe were already post-Christian. It took our culture another 200 years to catch up. But the leaders, the academic, the religious um, leaders, the political leaders in Europe, as, as early as the late 1700s, had already moved way beyond biblical Christianity. And so we have to, it's not just like we can rise up and say, oh, this is true. No, we got to go back way back in time and see all of the dominoes that have fallen. And we're talking about evolutionary theory influencing our legal system, influencing psychology, influencing, um, you know, you, you name an area of science, influencing it. It's right. every single aspect of our entire society is permeated with this assumption that was given to us a couple hundred years ago. So it's like a Gordian knot. Untying that is not something you just walk up there, oh, this is wrong, boom, and it's solved. You've got to, you got to diligently pursue all sorts of different leads, and it's impossible for one person to do that. So We've what got we about do is, two minutes left, Dr. Carter. Can you give us quickly what you think are maybe the strongest evidences for uh, young Earth or, or for the flood or, or something along those lines? Um, sure. Um, I, would, I would refer to listener to creation.com, first of all, because I'm not going to be able to hit them all. But in short order, um, best evidences for things being young are the inability of evolutionary theory or naturalism to explain the origin of life, which flies in the face of everything we know about chemistry, physics, probability, information theory. Um, the, um, I, w- I would say that genetics, modern genetics, showing that things are degrading over time and the rate of mutations accumulating, the fact that natural selection can't remove these mutations, is a great piece of evidence saying that these species cannot be millions of years old. They would not be here if they were. Um, I would say that carbon dating is a great thing because we can't find, to my understanding of it at the moment, we can't find a carbon source in the world that has zero carbon-14 in it. So even something like a diamond that has been radiometrically dated, they have carbon-14 in them. Well, diamonds can't be a billion years old then, and they can't be contaminated because they're a crystal. Um, I say, what else? Uh, there are so many different areas. Basically, there's, there's really good arguments in every area of science. In fact, uh, my colleagues and I, we are writing a book. It's called Evolution's Achilles Heels. Um, we have uh, nine Ph.D. scientists. Each one of them has written a chapter in their field on the weaknesses of evolutionary theory according to that field. Right. So I wonder a chapter on genetics. There's natural selection, uh, radiometric dating, Big Bang cosmology, the fossil record, the rock, um, the, the rock record, and all, all sorts of things like that. All right. So people should look to contact you through creation.com? Yep. Wonderful. Yep, that's the easy way to do it. Dr. Carter, it's been a pleasure having you on Evidence for Faith. We really thank you. Well, I appreciate the time. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi, the Student Apologetics Alliance. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. 
That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!